This morning's scripture comes from the book of Ezra, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esher-Haddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jill. Thank you, Jill. Praise the Lord. Saints, can y'all hear me? Thank you, Jill. Praise the Lord. Saints, will we just give God some praise? Put your hands together. If you want to stand to your feet and give him praise, just do that for a moment because he is worthy. He is good. He is holy. There is none like him throughout the heavens and the earth. We see this this morning, that he is a God that is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He is one who will, in the late night, midnight hours, comfort you when you're hurting. He will heal the sick. He will heal the broken hearted. He will be with God's people. He is a just and holy God. I mean, this is the God that we serve. He is everlasting peace. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the Father to the fatherless. He gives hope to the hopeless. This is the God. I just come here to worship. I just come here to worship. It's not about me. It's not about you. It is about Him. Amen. Thank you all for indulging me. I love Him. I love Him. Do you love Him? Downtown, do you love Him? Am I too loud? What do I need to do? Use the mic. I need to use the mic. Okay. Check, check, check. Okay. All right. All right. This messed me up a little bit. I'm, I'm that free, you know, guy. Like, so after just then, you know, we, we, we got filled with you. The, the Lord, we allowed the Lord to take control just a bit. So I got to dial back on my sermon. Please forgive me if I go uh, two hours long. Uh, to God be the glory. I got to cover all of chapter four. Did y'all know that? Uh, of Ezra. Uh, let me just say this before we get into God's word. If you are a visitor with us this morning, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we just want to be intentional with letting you know that you can fill out that uh, little uh, part on your bulletin there. And just if you have prayer requests, if you want to know more about downtown church, you have questions at all, please uh, list your contact information and we'll reach out to you. We'd love to get to know you um, if you're visiting with us. And thank you for being here this morning. Uh, and also, before we dive into text, I just want to say I am uh, privileged to serve as one of your pastors. Uh, it is, I, I don't feel entitled. I don't think this is somewhere that I need to be. But I think God has called me to be here, to be with you all. And I am privileged to be here and serve alongside of both Richard and Terrence and the elders and the deacons of this church. So I'm simply privileged to be your pastor. Amen. 
We look at our text this morning, uh, Aaron had already kind of given you guys a passage summary, but we are continuing the sermon series through, book, through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. <clears throat> and if you, there's a short video clip on our social media that can kind of give you a brief understanding of why we are doing this and an overview of this particular, these particular two books, which we know are one book. But in this passage this morning, we see that God's people face opposition. Say opposition. And so they are now settled in as they have been sent back to Jerusalem to build the temple. But now there's a problem. And so now God's people are trying to uh, still build in the midst of this problem. And so this is what we'll dive in in our passage this morning. Please let us pray to God before we do. Father, we love you and we bless you because you are a great mighty and holy God, one who is always willing to put his loving arms around us. Father, you sent your only son to die for us, and we are forever grateful for that. We thank you, Jesus, because you always remind us that you are our comforter. And so we ask this morning, even as we talk about opposition, and even as we look at what Ezra says to us, we pray that you allow me to high believe beneath your cross. Uh, Lord, use me as a mouthpiece for your people. And as you do, Lord Jesus, I pray that people see you and are encouraged by your word. And as you do so, Lord, I pray that you get all of the glory through your word that is proclaimed. For it is in Jesus' mighty name we pray. All God's people said. When faced with opposition, one must be steady. When faced with opposition, one must be steady. Was the military commander who uses this word strategically in the face of being attacked. Just imagine you have an army brandishing their weapons, rushing towards you, trying to kill you and everyone that is on your side. And as they do, you would think that this military commander would be frustrated. He would be worried. He'd be concerned. But no. He is poised. He's confident because he knows that he is well experienced and as he awaits the battle, he reviews past battles and he thinks about his well-trained army and their ability to fight back and the chance of victory that they have. He's very confident of that considering future and past accomplishments and the experience they will gain from this particular battle. So what does the commander say to his troops? Steady. Say steady. Just making sure you're awake this morning. And when you, when you think as believers, the reality is we can learn something from this. Because what it means to be steady, or with the commander that we have and who he says to be steady is us, and it is God. And he is one who has an unblemished record. One that is unprecedented, and his presence is ever failing. And his promises are one that tells us that we ultimately have the victory. Thus, in the face of opposition, we Remain steady. Downtown Church, I just want to talk to you this morning because I believe that over the last year and a half, by God's grace, you have been able to remain steady. And you may be thinking, Mike, what are you talking about? And visitors, you may be thinking about what are you talking about? There has been much Richard hinted to it this morning, praying for uh, the Grays, their story, the church's story, everyone else in here who has a narrative. There has been much loss, there has been much suffering and spiritual warfare throughout the last year and a half. We lost people. We've seen people who have lost loved ones. We've seen uh, the church go through much. We've seen 
so many different things in these tough days, we only know that it's by God's grace that downtown church can remain steady. God has blessed us with godly elders and deacons who have served and prayed for the church. And God has also blessed this church with a godly pastor and Richard Reeves, who even through personal opposition and loss, he's been able to lead and serve this flock. And I'm grateful for him, and I think we all should be. But most of all, and most important, I'm grateful to God because he has not removed his hand from this church. Amen. And I believe this, and if you were to hang your hat on anything that I said this morning, it is that God built up the faith in this church in order to endure opposition. God has built up the faith in this church to, in order to endure opposition. A faith that is unshakable, a faith that is unwavering, and a faith that is steady. And so what we see in this passage this morning is how can the children of God, the people of God, remain steady in the face of opposition? I think just two things. To endure opposition, you have to be aware of your enemy. Also, and to endure opposition, you have to know his tactics. You have to be aware of his tactics. Uh, in order to save time, I will walk through the passage just a little differently this morning uh, in order for us to move quickly and be timely. Amen. When we look at verse 1, we see that Ezra, as he is writing this memoir, he's not even on the scene yet. Ezra actually is going to come to, to the picture in chapter 7. But when we look at this particular scene, we see that what Ezra says at the beginning, now when the adversary, adversaries of Judah and Jerusalem have heard, the, uh, heard that return of the exiles were building the temple of the Lord. Stop right there. It is important to understand that the people who were trying to approach them to help them were their enemies, their adversaries. Why is it important? Because your enemy, and to beware of them, your enemy is very deceptive. Because in, they have nothing to do with building God's house. The enemy has nothing to do with God. And we'll unpack that just a little bit more, but we see that even for us, the arch enemy is Satan. The arch enemy is Satan, and he is very deceptive in the way in which he causes God's people to rebel. You remember in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled because of the craftiness of Satan. It wasn't that they had intentions to rebel until he said, do you want to become like God? And when you think about that, he entices them because he knows the idols of their hearts. The devil, in his deception, strategically tries to expose the idols of our hearts. If you are not aware of Satan, he will use anything in order in your life to steal, kill, and destroy everything in your life. If you are not aware of Satan, he will use anything in your life to kill, steal, and destroy everything in your life. Satan's strategy is to destroy God's church through dissension, through hurt, misunderstanding, political confusion, mistrust, malice, racial strife. 
and the pleasures of our heart. If you were to think, just as Richard said this morning, I think it was according to God's will, but how many people are excited about a church that tries to build the gap between racial, economic, intergenerational, various different things that divide us? How many churches desire that? How many people in our society want to see that? It is hard to be in this particular position because... We know not only does society not want to see a church strive for reconciliation and unity, but the devil certainly does not want to. And so when we know this, we have to say to ourselves, what, what does it mean for us in this church then to be together? I, I, I always like to give this example that we are a church where no matter how much money that you have in your pocket, you can sit right here in this church. A homeless man can sit next to a million dollar man. A, a, a single mother can sit next to a family that may seem as if they have it together. Seem. We just got out of the marriage conference yesterday. My, 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 my life sure enough seems like we got it together right now. Amen. My wife loves me right now. Ask me about tomorrow. But, but the reality is, we understand that if we can have a homeless man sitting in the same section as a man that has much wealth, that what are we moving away from and what are we moving to? Society says that we need to move away from the homeless man because of the stench, because of all of the external st- uh, uh, factors that have been told to us to move away from him. But we here at Downtown Church, and thinking through what this text is saying to us in terms of our adversary, we know that it is not, it is a lie from the pit of hell to say that rich and poor cannot be in the same place. Black and white cannot be in the same place. Hispanic and Asian cannot be in the same place. Those who are broken, those who have nothing cannot be in the same place. Here is a key principle into understanding that in God's house, There is equality. In God's house, there is justice. In God's house, there is peace. But if we are are not aware of the adversary, when somebody treats your kid wrong, or you don't feel as if someone's nice to you today, you may have misunderstood what someone said in a remark to you in the morning, you may take that and hold a grudge and walk away. And the devil can plant a seed of dissension in the church. One key principle is that, a kingdom principle, is that it is not for the church as the people of God to avoid opposition. I'm being intentional when I say it is important for the church to endure opposition. The reason being is that any church that is able to endure opposition has experienced the presence of God. The church will inevitably face the opposition because we ought to know that we have the victory and that Satan is a defeated foe. Christ is the victor. There is a victor theology that we can talk about and expand on and understand that, but we are inherent. We are inherit. Uh, we inherit that as believers. And we see in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus tell Peter, he t- says to Peter, you, Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If God is to build the church, 
Satan will not prevail against the church. If God is the foundation of our church, no scheme will be able to thwart God's plan for his church. This is why verse number two is important, because the irony is that this enemy wants to help them build their church. And look what they say in verse two. Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the day of Ashahadon, king of Assyria. Now, here's the truth about it. Yes. The king had resettled them in Ashahadon at that time. It was about 150 years of his reign. And in any king resettling individuals into a different place, uh, a people group into a different place, it was to maintain stability. It was to show that they had power and authority over them. And so he would resettle them to different places so they wouldn't be comfortable with the same rituals, the same cultural deals that they had, and they would have to be in an unfamiliar place. We see this actually in verse, I mean, in chapter, in uh, the book of Second. Kings chapter 17 and 32 to 35, where he's where the king has resettled them. But it doesn't say that they worship the same God. Look at second Kings 17 through 32 through 35. He says they also feared the Lord talking about the people of the land. They feared the Lord and appointed from among them all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for for them the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, and but uh, but also served their own gods. I'll just skip down for the sake of time. They do not fear the Lord, is what he says. And they do not follow the statutes and the rules and the laws, or the laws of the commandment of our Lord. For they do not follow the children of Israel whom... Uh, uh, the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. So Zerubbabel and the other church leaders, they know this. They know that this is a pluralistic people worshiping multiple gods and saying that they have they are worshiping the same God. So look at what they say. You have nothing to do with us in building the house of our God. I think that it's strange. I mean, it is strange that the enemy of God's people has tried to desire to help build the temple because on one end, they're ignorant. But on the other end, think about how their help could be a help to the people of Israel. Loading big, heavy stones and carrying around a lot of weight. Uh, It's easy for them to try to take that lending hand, take the hand of their enemy and say, could you please uh, continue to help us as we build a temple to our God because it's more convenient. Y'all may not see where I'm going. But Zerubbabel and the church leaders understood the core convictions of that church. They understood the basic tenets and they knew that they worshipped a different God than the God that they were saying they worshipped. Therefore, they rejected, they refused their help. I think that we live in a time today where people can try to misconstrue what justice looks like for society and says that the church ought to take upon itself a lot of the ideologies that are suggested about justice. You may not, you still may not be following me. When you live in a place where I don't think in the God we trust on the back of the dollar is the same God that I worship in this church. We live in a time today where the church, many would say, That there's no absolute truth, but there's only subjective truth. 
We live in a time, in a day, where individuals would hold that Confederacy and Christianity are synonymous. But that isn't true. Depending on your political affiliations, friends and family would define their walks depending on their partisan politics. Their ideologies, their understanding of the church continues to suggest that it should only be homogenous. Think about it. They're building a temple for worship. It is for the people of God. It is not a place in which outside influences ought to change what happens in God's church. That's what essentially we can grasp from this because God's people, we yes, we may be in the same church. We may not vote the same. We may not look the same. We may have different thinkings about things. We may raise our kids different. We, you know, some people may do time out. Some people may do spankings. Some people may do something else. I don't know. But the idea is there is no way to be the church without resolving and entering into the differences. Resolving the differences doesn't mean that we'll be on the same page. The enemy is outside of the church. The people of God are the ones that build the church. The emphasis here that I am placing on us is to see that the real temple if we would have a New Testament perspective, is you. That every living stone is sitting in the seats of this particular sanctuary. Where are you going with this, Mike? Remember when Jesus said, told the Pharisees that he will rebuild the temple in three days and they lost their mind because they said to themselves, and you would look at the next, you would look at chapter, you would look at 6 through 20, 23 where he fast forwards a bit. Where they, they lost their mind because they like, wait a minute. When they stopped the work, they told us, I mean, we, it, it took us 46 years in order to build this place. How are you going to build it in three days? Y- y'all tracking with me? Y'all remember, I like amens. Uh, in three days, Jesus said that he would rebuild what they took them 46 years. What he was talking about was him. That the temple in which that would be resurrected is him in order for the people of God to have a temple and be the temple. I think that this is what changes how we understand being the finished, the being unfinished and God preparing us for an ultimate glorification. That what we know that God was doing in building the temple for the people of Israel provided security. It provided protection. It knew, they knew that his presence was with them. The same thing happens when he says that we're jars of clay. And that in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, he says that you were bought with a price. And that his Holy Spirit actually resides in you. Do you understand that the presence of God, that what people long for and people died in order to touch the Ark of the Covenant, because they did it, they died. It resides in each of us. And building his church, brothers and sisters, it takes God to shape and form us in order to mold and build his church. So we have to be aware of Satan, 
Because he will try to use the living stones, the very ones, to destroy God's church. But we ought to endure opposition. Also, we must be aware of his tactics. I remember one preacher, he gave a story about the devil who decided to have a garage sale. And on that day of the garage sale, the devil laid out all his tools. And when he laid out all his tools, he had right before him hatred, envy, jealousy, deceit, lust, lying, pride, uh, violence, stealing, killing. Uh, He had uh, uh, drugs, all of that right laid right there in front. The man said he had one set apart that looked very harmless. This harmless tool was very worn, but it was high priced. And he asked him, the customer said, what's the name of this tool? And Satan replied, replied, replied to him and he said, this tool here is one of my favorite tools. I love this tool. It is discouraged, discouragement. This tool here is discouragement and I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go any lower on this price. He said, why do you have it so high? He says, because it is, more, it is the most useful tool. I've used this tool on God's people all the time. I can pry and open. I can get inside their hearts and their minds. Even when I cannot get near with them, with other tools, I use this tool. It is badly worn because I used it almost on every individual that's a child of God. Since so few people belong to me, is what the devil said. The devil's price for discouragement was so high, uh, was so was high because it is still his favorite tool even to this day. Mike, why are you talking about discouragement? Well, when you look at verse four, it says, "Then the people of the land." discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. My point here this morning is that what he does in trying to discourage the work that is happening at downtown church is to take the last year and a half and to say, this may not be the place for me because of how much they've gone through. No, 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 no. We need to reverse that. We need to say this is the place for me because how they have been able to endure. It is this then that the deception that tries to often take over our minds and the discouragement that that the devil allows to seep in because what we see from this text that even when we look, when he flash forwards just to uh, maybe a hundred or so years, when he talk, he writes the, the letter to the kings of Artaxerxes, the accusations that he makes against Judah are all false accusations. They're lies. But he is, the, the enemies are trying to stop, they did stop this work eventually, so, because they could take the money, they could take so much pleasure for themselves, etc. But here's the thing. This is what I want us to understand. That the devil, for us, in our personal history, he will use it to try to defeat us. And the reason we know this is because we have oftentimes been discouraged by our life circumstances. Those who have have absent fathers know that he will try to discourage you because you didn't have a father. And when you look around, people have that. 
many of us know that we will probably be discouraged because you see someone with employment, but you don't have employment. Others may say that even college students may say, I don't have the opportunity just to enjoy college. I have to work or I have to fight for my financial aid. I, I have to go through all of this. I think about my brothers and sisters who are suffering through DACA right now. They, there's a level of discouragement. I remember sitting with one sister who is a DACA recipient, and she would say that I was born here and I don't know anything else. If they were to send me back to Honduras, it would be a foreign place. And, and the discouragement there is that she believes that and knows that where she is is home. But how Satan will use it through various different things to allow her to believe that she has no home. High schoolers will go to school and oftentimes they will be distracted and be enticed by drugs, gangs, and violence. They can't focus even when you're in elementary school because you're at home and this week has been so cold but the windows in your house are broken. And so the cardboard box is the thing that is holding the cold from penetrating the house. You have no heat in the house, and so you're so distracted when you're at school, you can't even focus on the ABCs. You can be discouraged. These schemes that the devil used are intentional to prevent God's plan. But God's promise is more powerful than his discouragement. I remember Brian Stevenson giving uh, one of an illustration. This is the author of Just Mercy, and I'm closing. And he said... That he was speaking, if you have not read that book, please do. It is a good book. He said that he was speaking at one church, and as he was talking, a man in a wheelchair yelled from the back, Do you know what you're doing? He was yelling from the back, Do you know what you're doing? And he continued to yell, yell one time, Do you know what you're doing? And he said, No, I don't know what I'm doing. He said, You're beating the drum for justice. This was a reference to Dr. King's drum major sermon that was pretty famous but nonetheless, he called Brian to him as, the, as, he began, as he finished talking and pulled him close to his wheelchair. And he said to him, you see this cut behind my ear? I got this cut in Greene County, Alabama in 1963 trying to register people to vote. And he looked at him again. He, he said to you, do you see this scar right here at the bottom of my neck? I got that in 1964 in Philadelphia, Alabama trying to register people to vote. He pointed to the bruise on the top of his head. and He said, this dark spot that you see, I got this in 1965, trying to register people to vote. He went on to say that people see me as some weak and feeble man. When they see me, they think that all of these scars and these bruises mean that I'm someone that's beat up and left out for dead. But he said, these scars, these bruises, aren't just scars and bruises, but they're my medals of honor. His wounds, as he would say, were for his fellow man. These were wounds of justice. These were symbols in which he could pride himself. But there is one who took the ultimate wound. And, and the ultimate wound was what Isaiah said in verse in chapter 53 that by the chastisement of his peace he was wounded 
for our transgressions. He endured the bruise for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement of our peace. Do you understand that the opposition he endured was not an opposition for the wounds just to be there? It was so that God's people may be his temple. When Ezra allows us to look forward, it gives us an eschatological understanding of the ultimate fulfillment of God's redemptive purpose. It is his timing, brothers and sisters, that we know that his temple will be built by his people. Let me pray for us. Father, I love you. We bless you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. Lord, we know that you are one who continues to wrap your loving arms around us, even when we are bruised, when we're beat up, when we're scarred. When people try to tell us who we are, but we already know who we are in you, God, help us to arm ourselves with the armor of God so that we may not fight this battle with flesh and blood. But, Lord, we know that it is by spiritual nourishment and growth that we are able to endure opposition in a way in which we will be able to proclaim your name and your glory, for you are our God and King. In Jesus' name, all God's people said.